Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, translated into 300 different languages, connected to a worldwide network of activist correspondents. We are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement, and I am your host, Steve D'Angelo. Please subscribe to this channel if you haven't already. And remember, our show is also available on Social Club TV, on the app or online. And please support the companies that support this show, Happy Monkey, The Astor Club, and Liberty Clothing. Global cannabis headlines this past month have been mixed. In some places, we've seen rapid and unexpected progress. In others, we continue to see stories of heartbreaking injustice and oppression. On the positive tip, the U.S. and international cannabis community has been riding a wave of good feelings emanating from the recent legalization of cannabis in multiple jurisdictions, including most notably the state and city of New York. While much has yet to be determined, many of us believe that the New York legislation may give birth to the most progressive and diverse cannabis industry seen anywhere in the world thus far and will add fuel to the already burning hot issue of federal legalization. We'll have a special on-the-ground report from New York later in the episode. Sadly, the southern state of Mississippi seems to be moving in the exact opposite direction, making itself a contender for being one of the most cannabis-ignorant jurisdictions on the planet. In the 2020 general election, the voters of Mississippi approved a medical cannabis initiative by a large margin, bringing what appeared to be a modicum of cannabis sanity to one of the most notoriously racist anti-cannabis states in the entire country. But just as Mississippi's newly legal and licensed cannabis companies were beginning to set up their businesses, the state Supreme Court invalidated the initiative and entirely threw out the medical cannabis laws bringing the company's plans to a sudden halt. The court's supposed grounds for this ruling was that the signatures authorizing the initiative had not been properly collected, even though the cannabis initiative used exactly the same procedures utilized by other non-cannabis initiatives that the Supreme Court has allowed to stand as law, including a voter suppression initiative that was designed to limit voting by people of color. Not coincidentally, but adding massive insult to this grievous injury, in the same week, the Mississippi Court of Appeals, which is one step down in authority from the Supreme Court, affirmed the life sentence of Alan Russell, an African-American man convicted of possessing 30 grams of cannabis. Russell qualified for the sentence because simple personal possession of cannabis is considered a felony in Mississippi and Russell had previously served time in prison and been released for non-cannabis felony charges. And so another one of our brothers, another member of the cannabis tribe, an African-American brother who had already paid his debt for earlier crimes, faces spending the rest of his life in prison just for using and possessing a tiny amount of cannabis. 
while overwhelmingly white investment bankers and stockbrokers in the United States are allowed to accumulate intergenerational wealth, growing and selling vastly larger quantities of the same substance. It is a horrifying and completely unacceptable injustice that we absolutely cannot allow it to stand. Can you imagine being Alan Russell and hearing that in this day and age, with all that is known about cannabis, with all the powerful people who are making money, that your life sentence for possessing a handful of cannabis has been affirmed? Alan, like all of our brothers and sisters, must come home and we will not stop and we will not rest until they're free. This kind of cannabis ignorance, unfortunately, knows no borders in today's world. We must confront it almost everywhere, from the Christian fundamentalist heartland of Mississippi to Malaysia, where fundamentalist Muslims are also on the warpath against cannabis. We're drawing attention this episode to the case of Amiruddin Abdullah, a 62-year-old decorated Malaysian military officer and grandfather. He began growing cannabis and making his own medicines during his retirement after he found pharmaceuticals ineffective for the diabetes, cancer, and heart disease he was suffering from. Amarudin's symptoms included a tumor on his spine, but those homemade cannabis medicines restored his health and probably saved his life. So, like any decent person, Amarudin began sharing his cannabis medicines with friends and family who are also suffering from diseases, and eventually with a wider circle of people. These acts of love and compassion eventually led the police to arrest Amarudin, and he's now facing a death sentence, which is mandatory for distribution of cannabis under Malaysian law. In honor of the help he's provided to them, the many patients that Amarudin have assisted have dubbed him Dr. Ganja, even though he has no formal medical training or credentials. Dr. G's court case has been repeatedly postponed over the course of the last four years. His next hearing is May 31st, where he will face four prosecution witnesses, even as international news media have reported that the Malaysian government is now considering an end to all death sentences for cannabis offenses, as well as further reforms to its cannabis laws. Meanwhile, our brother remains in prison. His health is failing, his family continues to suffer, and Dr. G continues to be shamed and humiliated for simply doing the right and decent thing, for saving the lives of his fellow citizens. Now, this story would already be horrifying if it just ended here, but we now know that in fact at least two other men, Mohammed bin Zainal and Mohammed Lukman, are also in prison, facing death sentences for their roles in spreading cannabis medicine and cannabis freedom in Malaysia. We're only just beginning to learn more about their cases, and we'll pass on more details as we get them. This important information is coming to light today because of the bravery of Dr. G's family, the courage of Malaysian cannabis activists, and the love of the Malaysian branch of the International Cannabis Tribe, who have reached out to The Last Prisoner Project and produced a film telling his story, Ayaku Dr. G, which translates as My Father Dr. G, 
to our sisters and brothers in Malaysia and in Mississippi, know that you are not forgotten. There's a lot of talk these days about the amount of money that's being made in the new legal cannabis industry, about all the excitement of emerging markets and new technologies and a wave of cannabis millionaires and billionaires. And we certainly welcome all that prosperity here at Radio Free Cannabis. But we also believe that the most important part of the cannabis story is the new healing and freedom that this plant is bringing all around the world. The wonderful changes it's making in a world that needs change so desperately. So we'll continue to tell the stories of the heroes who are risking their lives to make it happen. Don't lose hope. We will never forget you. We will never abandon you. And I promise one day all of us are going to march together to victory. I know this truth because I've lived it. The recent legalization of cannabis in the state and city of New York is one striking example from my own life. I was 16 years old in 1975, the first time I marched in the Yippie May Day Cannabis Freedom March, and it was nothing like today. We were surrounded by hostile cops who picked us off and hauled us away one by one for beatings and arrests. There were no elected officials there to address us. There was no news media to tell our story. There was no legislature willing to take action. Back then, legalizing cannabis was considered a crazy, unattainable hippie dream. This year, at the age of 62, I smoked my first legal joint in New York. I smoked it openly and proudly, right in the middle of Broadway, marching at the head of this year's Freedom March. Along with the half dozen of my old yippie comrades who have survived to see this day. After the march, I walked with friends cross town to the Astor Club, one of the new consumption lounges that are opening up all around the city. And on the way, completely unable to restrain ourselves, we stopped at a bench in the middle of a traffic island, rolled up a fat joint and started blazing away with not a care in the world, not a care in the world. We were able to do that because the law in New York now makes it legal to smoke a joint anywhere that you can smoke a cigarette. Now, it took us a lot longer to legalize cannabis in New York than we expected it would back in the 1970s. But we persisted. We persevered. We refused to take no for an answer. And today, cannabis is legal in New York. Our cannabis use no longer makes us second-class citizens, no longer gives the police justification to stop and frisk us or seize our property or lock us up on Rikers Island. The passage of New York's law was a close and unexpected thing, the result of a sexual harassment scandal that made Governor Andrew Cuomo desperate to get a news story in the headlines. So he suddenly abandoned his long-standing opposition and endorsed one of the most progressive cannabis legalization laws ever seen. In addition to the Great Public Consumption Clause, the law allows New Yorkers to grow cannabis in their homes and gardens. It provides that 50% of all licenses will be issued to people from communities that were disproportionately targeted during the war on cannabis, and creates a class of cottage licenses that will allow growers to cultivate up to 3,000 square feet of cannabis and directly retail it to their customers. 
And for the first time I know of in any state or any country, there's serious discussion of providing licenses to the thousands of New Yorkers who have been making their money, earning their living in the legacy unregulated market, sometimes for generations. We're just at the very beginning of the process in New York. Because of the way the law was passed, many of the best provisions are just promises at this point. They haven't been expressed into comprehensive regulations, and we know from the past that the big cannabis corporations will use their dollars and influence to game the system. Make no mistake, despite our win in New York, there's still a struggle going on for the soul of the cannabis industry, and New York has become its latest battleground. If we fail to defend our gains there, we shall surely lose them. The global cannabis freedom movement is hundreds of millions of people strong. We've been slowly but steadily building our strength and catching our stride for the past half century, first in California, then the rest of the United States, and now our movement is spreading across the whole world. This progress is a tribute to the resilience and determination of hundreds of thousands of activists, everyday people who have heard the call of this plant everywhere, truth-tellers who have dedicated themselves to bringing the good news about cannabis to their family and friends and fellow citizens, sometimes at great risk to themselves. This is the mighty army our radio-free cannabis activist correspondents are drawn from and represent. We'll hear from a few of them now. First is a new first-time Radio Free Cannabis correspondence, Nitin Reddy, with a poignant report from India, where prohibition continues to wreak heartbreaking destruction on everyday people, even as individual Indian states work to dismantle it. Welcome to Radio Free Cannabis, Nitin. Thank you, Steve. In India, we are dealing with the sacramental role for cannabis, ranging from ancient time to present day. For thousands of years, the plant has been valued for food, medicine, shelter, clothes, spiritual or consciousness awakening needs. Yet, the plant was prohibited on November 14, 1995 because of propaganda created by the US government and their corporate bodies. The decision to ban and classify cannabis along with a bunch of lethal drugs was a systematically plotted accident of history with no clear-cut root of evidence. The plan which was called Vijaya in our Vedas, Banga in our Ayurveda, Bangi, Ganja, Shiva Patre or Prasad by sadhus and yogic people was taken away from us and advertised as a dangerous drug. Today, in 2021, a yogic medicinal sacred native plant is struggling for its existence in its very own nation. Though there are seven states which has legalized cannabis for medicinal and industrial uses, there are many loopholes. War on cannabis has destroyed many lives, eradicated many communities, violated our basic fundamental rights and ravaged many social problems we deal with today. Corruption is one of the major problems directly affecting our cannabis farmers. I would love to report an incident about a cannabis farmer I met a couple of months back. He is a 70-year-old man who has been growing the plant for 50 years. He used to provide cannabis to the nearby Shiva temple for puja and this occupation was passed on to him by his ancestors. 
Just some months back, his 60-year-old wife and 48-year-old son was sentenced to 14 years in prison for cultivating the plant. When this man approached local authorities looking for help or guidance, those people asked him for 15 lakhs, that is $20,244 of bribe to set them free. Now this poor man is all alone battling for the commutation of his loud one sentence or else they remain behind bars until 2034. For many farmers, this very old plant is one of the only ways to make a living. And their only problem is cultivation of cannabis is illegal in India. While many nations across the globe are making a tremendous amount of revenue by doing the same activity, this man is struggling for his basic fundamental right in the world's largest democratic nation. His right to freedom, choice, privacy, spirituality and consciousness has been seized by the system. This is just the voice of a single farmer out of thousands who are suffering daily just because of these illogical laws which were imposed just 36 years back. Laws are made for the people, people are not made for the law. We can reform these laws only with education cause it can unite people. The education imparted by art with no selfish motive can create a revolution in our society. So let's talk cannabis and break the taboo attached with it. Start writing to your local representatives, tell them the miracles this beautiful plant can offer mankind and mother earth. She can heal hundreds of diseases ranging from insomnia, stress, epilepsy to cancer. This is just a plant that was put behind bars for no absolute reason. This is Nitin Reddy from Mahavijaya Andalan, India, reporting for Radio Free Cannabis. Thank you, Nitin, for that great first report. The next time some ignorant Yahoo tries to convince me that cannabis prohibition doesn't really hurt anybody, I'm going to share this story of a 70-year-old grandfather peacefully and privately pursuing a profession handed down to him through generations of ancestors, who as a result has had his family kidnapped, imprisoned, and held for ransom by uniformed thugs, and had his livelihood and property threatened with total destruction. The truth is that cannabis prohibition wounds millions and millions of people, and it wounds us deeply, and we're tired of it. We're sick and tired of it all over the world, and we're not going to take it anymore. The cannabis tribe is rising. Next, we hear from Nicole Lonergan, reporting from Ireland. Thanks, Steve. Here in Ireland at the moment, less than 80 people have access to medical cannabis products, which are picked up by a courier in the Netherlands and then transported back here to patients in Ireland. Patients under the current licensing system are still being ignored by the Irish government and they're left to pay anywhere from 600 all the way up to 9,500 euro every three months for their prescriptions. Some are reimbursed while others are not. The medical cannabis access program itself is not expected to be up and running until June of this year at the earliest and only permits three specific conditions access to four cannabis-based medicines as a last resort. So, for example, patients with MS, they'll be forced to take high doses of drugs like tizanidine, baclofen and even Botox before any cannabis-based medicines will be considered, none of which are flower under the medical cannabis access program. It has come to light through various news reports that the Irish government were lobbied by a Canadian company, Figure, who are owned by a global tobacco firm, as well as another lobbying group called Green Agri as recently as January 2021. 
While meeting with these groups, the Irish government continued to target CBD businesses and to ignore cannabis patients and advocates all across Ireland. Under EU law, CBD products with trace amounts of THC are legal in all member states, which includes Ireland. However, Guardian Revenue continue to target small CBD businesses in Ireland, while chain stores like Holland and Barrett can sell CBD products with trace amounts of THC with no legal repercussions. Many of these small businesses have active, ongoing cases against the state, the dates of which keep being pushed back and these businesses continue to have their stock seized. Complaints have been filed with the European Commission regarding this violation of EU law and all of these efforts must result in the Misuse of Drugs Act being amended to reflect the European Court of Justice ruling. Through a Freedom of Information request, it was revealed that an anti-cannabis group engaged in meetings with the minister responsible for the national drug strategy, Frank Feehan. This group consists of staunch prohibitionists who seek to undermine and prevent any access to cannabis in Ireland, even for extremely sick patients, with most, if not all, of the group not believing that medical cannabis is a thing. Minister Frank Feehan gladly met with this group. He corresponded with them personally, and he even thanked them for their work. As a public servant, Minister Feehan is required to engage with all members of the public without bias or discrimination, yet after almost a year of being in his current role, has yet to engage with anyone in regards to sensible drug policy, cannabis law reform or ending cannabis prohibition in Ireland. On the 4th of May, the College of Psychiatrists in Ireland accidentally time-travelled back to the 1950s when they released some reports and a claim that cannabis is the gravest threat to the mental health of young people in Ireland. These documents contain claims like cannabis users smoke the leaves of the plant, that cannabis is not a treatment for mental illness, and that apparently 45,000 15 to 34-year-olds now meet the criteria for cannabis dependence. Interesting to note that craving cannabis once or consuming more cannabis than intended once in a 12-month period meets the criteria to diagnose someone with cannabis use disorder. These reports were met with widespread backlash by many young people in Ireland who spoke out against the CPI's reports, citing the housing crisis, high rents, climate change, the pandemic, waiting lists for often inadequate mental health services, the homelessness crisis, lack of living wage and opportunities, and more as having a significant impact on Ireland's younger generations. Addiction specialist and GP Dr. Garrett McGovern also came out in opposition, stating in his belief that COVID-19 is currently the biggest threat to the mental health of young people in Ireland, adding that current drug policy in Ireland isn't protecting people and that blanket prohibition isn't working. The College of Psychiatrists in Ireland have refused to respond to inquiries and any requests for comment. To anyone watching this, Ireland desperately needs international pressure as well as support. If you can help, please do get in touch or share your opinion on social media using the hashtag Cannabis Reform Ireland. Thank you, Nicole. It's heartbreaking to hear about the level of ignorance, corruption, secrecy and hypocrisy still surrounding cannabis in Ireland. We deeply appreciate your efforts to keep us informed and your persistence and courage for speaking the truth to an establishment so deeply mired in its own misinformation. We hope to see a mighty blazing Irish Cannabis Freedom Army line up behind you to take on these dinosaurs and send them back to the past where they belong and make sure they never dare to darken the doors of our homes and our freedom ever again. Next, we take a look at the historical background and latest news of cannabis prohibition in the United Kingdom with another new first time 
Radio Free Cannabis activist correspondent, Keshav Jatin Kapoor. Cheers, Steve. I'm glad to be here to rep for the UK and attempt to offer up a concise history of cannabis prohibition in Britain, uh, along with where we stand right now. So let's get right into it. Now, since the UK has completed its transition into Brexit after its infamous referendum over four years ago, many are beginning to ask the question if cannabis legalisation is a likely step in Britain's quest to become a strong standing sovereign nation. But I think in order to gauge those prospects, we first need to know a little bit more about the very turbulent journey cannabis legislation has taken in the UK, uh, because a lot of the historical commentary around cannabis, particularly of marijuana, is strongly against a comprehensive approach to legalisation and is rooted in a great deal of half thinking and misinformation. So let's do some history. Um, Britain's approach to cannabis prohibition actually began with its colonies during the 19th century when British colonizers in India attempted to criminalize cannabis in 1838, 1871 and 1877. And then between 1840 to 1922, the British Empire successfully criminalized cannabis in Mauritius, Singapore, Jamaica, the East Africa Protectorate, uh, Sierra Leone and South Africa. And it wasn't actually until 1928 that cannabis was prohibited in the UK as an addendum to the Dangerous Drugs Act of 1920. Now, during the 1960s, cannabis arrests increased by just under 1900% by the end of the decade, which triggered the classification of cannabis as a Class B controlled substance under the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act, where it has remained to this day, um, except for a temporary five-year period between 2004 and 2009, where it was downgraded to a Class C substance, which was weird um, and just kind of proved that the back and forth narrative um, was a result of an obvious uh, lack of knowledge on the subject by the UK government, which to be honest, has continued and lasted into the new 20s where we are right now. So, um, you know, the central theme of UK drug policy is its categorization of controlled substances determined by three classes from A to C, which are allocated to the substance based on how much social harm the drug is perceived to cause and therefore the punishment that is given for its possession, distribution or cultivation. So an educated and well-researched approach should be vital to this classification process. But since the UK government's stance on marijuana still claims extreme social harm from its herbal form, it's quite safe to say that this approach is seldom taken. Uh, now, the term controlled substance itself is a poor definition of the current status of cannabis since there's little to no control over its production and supply. The existing market is completely illicit, meaning it's controlled entirely by underground syndicates or independent informal vendors, and it's completely unregulated, which means there's no control over the quality and safety assurance of what is being supplied to an eclectic range of consumers. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that all of the unregulated cannabis in the UK is of low quality. It does stand to be true that many informal cultivators and specialists uh, produce a quality standard that would be accepted as a regulate in, uh, inside a regulated market. Um, however, obviously, due to the risks involved with this type of operation, these growers are not as easily accessible as a local informal inventor, uh, vendor, for example. Now, on a political level, uh, neither the Labour Party nor the Conservative government have ever really shown a willingness to pursue legalisation and less so decriminalisation in the same way that surrounding nations across Europe and the Americas have done so over the last decade. The back and forth uh, 
the back and forth over which class cannabis should be categorized was entirely under Labour's oversight. And although it was the current conservative government that decided to legalize marijuana for medical use at the end of 2018, they did so with a restrictive prescription program, which has meant access to these medicines are limited to those who can afford to pay obscene amounts to specialist doctors. Um, this is really because the NHS doctors aren't able to prescribe cannabinoid medicines to patients who essentially qualify for treatments because NHS funding is unavailable for those medications. So those who need them need to see a specialist, which is high cost and therefore inaccessible to people on lower incomes. Now, as mentioned earlier, the UK government still holds the opinion that cannabis in its herbal form has no medicinal benefits. So the only medicines that are currently being prescribed by specialist doctors are given in an oral spray form, specifically nabiximols, uh, or more commonly known as Sativex, which has been developed by GW Pharmaceuticals, a British pharmaceutical corporation. Now, on the topic of decriminalisation, uh, the dialogue is weak. And actions surrounding restorative social measures for communities where cannabis prohibition has created or enforced damaging stereotypes and experiences is closest to none. Um, the discussions on legal reform lack details into different types of reparative measures that should be implemented um, and instead focus on shifting from criminal prosecutions to civil penalties and fine, uh, fines with little to no mention of how any profits derived from such measures um, would be spent on social data to correct social damage, to pursue medical research or to subsidise access to medicine through the National Health Services, which I think is fair to say a primary directive for any well-informed cannabis advocate in the UK. So to summarise, I think we could say that Britain's legislative reforms for cannabis have only ever focused on its reclassification as a controlled substance and now to the growth of medicinal wholesaling and exports from British pharmaceuticals to, to bolster economic growth in the private sector with no thought or consideration around the benefits of a comprehensive legal reform to decriminalise and fully legalise uh, cannabis as well as reinvest in the closing of the cannabis health equity gap via private sector taxation and and profits accumulated via civil penalties. And I guess to summarise the summary, the UK's approach to legislative reform really does need to expand into a more mature dialogue um, that can take into account the various benefits and opportunities for social investment, as well as the potential for strong economic growth. I've been Keshav Jatin Kapoor. Thank you for having me on Radio Free Cannabis, and I look forward to speaking with you all again very soon. Thank you, Keshav. Your report illustrates the tremendous amount of ignorance, hypocrisy, racism, and corruption that UK activists are up against. We know that these kind of circumstances, and the kind of circumstances that Nicole is facing in Ireland, and that thousands of other activists around the world face every day, can make your lives feel difficult and make the mission seem daunting and victory seem distant. So we salute you and applaud you for persisting through the shadows of prohibition and promise you this, the light of freedom is closer than it may seem right now. One day, activists everywhere will be celebrated for saving lives, for caring enough to stand up, for having the fortitude to challenge the law when it was so clearly wrong. We're going to close out this episode with a report from Dr. Gary Richter one of the earliest pioneers of veterinary cannabis medicine and the vet that I take my own dogs to. One of the lesser known facts about cannabis is that every single animal on our planet, with the exception of insects, has an endocannabinoid system and can derive health benefits from ingesting cannabis. That's 
Great news for those of us humans who have close animal friends and family members. But veterinary cannabis needs to be handled very carefully, preferably under the care of a licensed veterinarian. Today, Gary's going to describe some of the factors that stand in the way of that goal and how we can overcome them. Thanks, Steve. And thanks for allowing me to talk to people and to talk to you about something that's really important, not only for veterinary medicine, but also for anybody who owns or loves a pet. And what I want to talk about today is medical cannabis for animals. I've been a veterinarian in the Bay Area for over 20 years, and without a doubt, the most significant thing that I have seen happen in veterinary medicine in the past decade has been the advent of the use of medical cannabis products for animals. Uh, you know, we're all aware of the benefits that, that medical cannabis can have for people, whether it's pain control, seizures, anxiety, uh, anti-cancer effects, what have you. All of those potential applications work in veterinary medicine as well. Uh, it's been an absolutely unbelievable thing to be able to begin to incorporate cannabis into treatment protocols uh, for my patients. There is a problem, however, and, and the problem is, is number one, there's a lack of education amongst the veterinary community. Uh, and perhaps more importantly, number two, there's a real lack of understanding as it pertains to the regulatory aspects of all of this. For example, in California, a number of years ago, the Veterinary Medical Board sent out a letter to every veterinarian in the state telling them that if they discussed or recommended cannabis for their patients, they would put their, their license at risk. Uh, and not surprisingly, that led to most veterinarians in the state refusing to have anything to do uh, with cannabis for fear of their livelihood. Well, we've since been able to get some of that changed by passing legislation in California that allows veterinarians to discuss cannabis. But really, this is a, it's, it's a much broader issue. It's not only a California issue, it's a nationwide issue. Uh, and veterinarians in every state are faced with the challenges associated with people coming in and wanting to know how to use cannabis for their pets, this lack of education uh, for, for the veterinary community, uh, and, and really just a, a, a complete, you know, a complete sort of open space as far as what the regulations are. There are states that say it's fine. There are states that say it's not fine. There are states that haven't made a decision. And the entire veterinary profession is, is sort of in flux right now. And what that led to was both myself and a number of my colleagues, we put together an organization last year called the Veterinary Cannabis Society. Uh, the Veterinary Cannabis Society, it's a 501c3 nonprofit. And our mission is really three things. Number one, educate the veterinary community and educate pet owners about how medical cannabis can be used safely and effectively. Number two, work with regulatory agencies and legislatures to make sure that appropriate, sensible legislation is passed to protect both animals and veterinarians. And then number three, to work with industry that, is, that are making products, uh, cannabis products specifically for animals, we wanna make sure that those products are safe, they're made properly, they're labeled properly, so that when people go and buy these things, there's, you know, there's, there's, 
you know, there's every chance they're, they're going to be beneficial and minimizing the chances that any harm could be done. Because I think as we all know, you know, cannabis, cannabis is incredibly powerful medicine, uh, but it also can be misused. And let's just be clear, there is no such thing as recreational cannabis use for animals. So, you know, your pet getting high uh, either intentionally or by accident from the from a dosing mistake with with medicine is never going to be something that's acceptable and that's really where the veterinary profession needs to come in is to give people guidance on which cannabis product is best what dose is best what to look out for just like I would make recommendations for any pharmaceutical for any other herbal therapy that I may use in my office this is why people come to their veterinarian to get guidance for these sorts of things and that's where the veterinary cannabis society really comes into play so we're just now uh, getting ready to launch our website is vcs.pet vcs.pet so so really really easy to remember uh, our website is open for for people who just want to come and get information it's also open for membership to either either veterinary professionals or pet owners or people in industry that are interested in learning more and 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 taking part in educational programs on how to become more educated in the proper use of cannabis uh, and and we're certainly looking for anybody out there who may be a pet lover, uh, understands medical cannabis and really wants to get involved here. Anything from administrative to, to advocacy, to financial support, anything that anybody may be able to do to help the organization would be much appreciated. Uh, you know, if you go to vcs.pet, uh, if you have anything to add, any suggestions to make, you can just go to the contact us page and, and you know, we would love to hear from you. But thanks so much for this opportunity to talk a little bit about medical cannabis for pets. It's such an important topic to make sure that these powerful medicines are being used safely and effectively. So again, thank you. And uh, we hope to see you on the VCS website. Thank you, Gary. Friends, please pay careful attention to Gary. In my personal experience, I've seen cannabis be tremendously helpful for pets, but I've also seen inappropriate dosing of pets. And on a few occasions, I've seen cannabis cause real damage. So be careful. And remember, it's not ethical to alter the consciousness of a creature who cannot consent to that alteration. As we end our time together today, please remember the real work that we are up to. Our movement isn't just about making cannabis legal, even though that's a critical part of the mission. Our real work, our ultimate purpose, is to build a world that lives by the lessons that cannabis teaches us, a world that is just, that is sustainable, that has a place in it for all of us, and that nurtures life instead of destroying it. We will keep moving together toward that goal because we know there's no other choice. We know that failing to build a new consciousness and a new world is not an option. We know that the unborn generations are counting on us and we're not gonna let them down. As I speak these words, I know that some of you are in difficult circumstances. You may be alone or afraid or otherwise unable to find the fellowship of our tribe. Your family or religion may be casting shame upon you. You may be challenged to find supportive employment or housing or education. 
you may live in a state where people are still receiving life sentences for possessing cannabis, or a country where those who share cannabis medicine are given death sentences. Your priest or your imam or your rabbi or your pastor may reject your love of cannabis and try to make you doubt the value of your relationship with the plant. Wherever you are, whatever the circumstances, know this, as long as you love cannabis, you will never be alone. There are hundreds of millions of us worldwide. We are a global tribe larger than most nations. And we know that none of us will be truly free until all of us are truly free. We've committed ourselves to legalizing cannabis and creating a world that lives by its lessons. And we will not stop and we will not rest until we achieve that mission and each and every one of us can step into the full light of freedom. Until our next episode, be well and stay strong.